Oh, so uh, what do you want to talk about today? Oh God, where to start? Um, so I think I wanted to talk. Uh, about wait, them. I think I need to. Ask. Who am I speaking with again? Uh, Sarah Bess. Oh, thank you. I'm a, yeah, I don't know. I guess I'm a poet. Uh, mostly I make music, uh, but sometimes I write poems. And I've been pretty involved in poetry stuff lately. But yeah, I wanted to, uh, I wanted to talk some about, about poetry and money. Um, you know, where, where's the money coming from in these institutions that are writing grants and giving fellowships and awards? Um, how's that money sort of working? This is something I've just been kind of scratching the surface of trying to learn how to read tax documents and shit. And it's like, if you trace any money back far enough, it's blood money. It's all stolen land and stolen labor and stolen lives. But some of that blood is really fresh. And so I'm just, I'm curious about um, sort of these these poetic institutions and how they're tied up in other institutions that are not just, you know, it's not just that it's blood money, but these are institutions that are actively doing harm to people now. Like they're actively violent institutions in the present. And you were saying uh, you were looking into Rattle's tax documents? Yeah, yeah, that's something I guess a few of us were looking at. And that's where I really started to figure out, oh, okay, here's where you can get these documents. And here's how you can look at this stuff and kind of read it. And it's a little complicated. I'm still not always sure exactly what I'm looking at. But like with Rattle, um, which I guess for our, for our listeners, if they're not familiar with Rattle, uh, they're kind of a well-known poetry journal that I think most people know of just because they pay and they give out an annual prize that's pretty big. I mean, it might be like a $10,000 prize. Um, they can go to anyone who's been published in Rattle that year. And they give out some smaller prizes. Um, and they're also, I think, kind of well-known for having published some pretty reactionary stuff and having defended it. Um, maybe the most infamous example being Rachel Custer's work. Um, it's kind of like pro-Trump MAGA poetry. Um, and so I didn't really, I think not that long ago, I didn't have all this awareness of Rattle. I knew of them as this literary magazine that a lot of big names have published in and that they paid. And so I'd even submitted to them at one point without really doing, you know, a lot of research. I was like, oh, they pay. And I'm just submitting places that, you know, trying to get money. And, you know, come to find out they've published some really sketchy kind of reactionary stuff. And then I find out like a couple weeks after it happened that the editor uh, from Rattles, Tim Green, um, had gone on a Quillette podcast um, to defend uh, Frank Sherlock, who's this um, you know former Philadelphia poet laureate um, who uh, turned out to have a past as a Nazi skinhead. 
or he's like talking shit about me um, because I had said some things about Frank Sherlock. And so I'm like, okay, who the fuck is this guy, you know, who runs this journal? It seems maybe a little reactionary. Now he's going on this crypto fascist podcast talking shit about me. I'm getting harassment about it. What is this magazine really? And so, you know, a, a few of us start looking at the financials. And and Rattle is funded entirely by this, this L.A. real estate company, um, ACF Property Management, who's this uh, billionaire guy, Alan C. Fox. And it's run in this really sketchy way where, like, if you look at their tax documents, they have some citations where, like, Alan C. Fox is paying employees like for the ACF property management through Rattle, the Rattle Foundation. He's borrowing money from the Rattle Foundation um, to go into ACF property management, um, which this is like a nonprofit foundation. So he's basically using it as a, a tax shelter. And this Tim Green guy is getting paid, God, what? I like have the document up now. I think Tim Green gets like 80 grand a year, maybe more. Yeah, they were all making a lot of money and I'm pretty sure they're getting health benefits too on top of that. Yeah, yeah, there's benefits in there. Yeah, and I think it was uh, James, Big Brosity on Twitter, who first uh, deduced that Rattle was a landlord-funded company. Yeah, yeah, because if you look at their uh, their address on their documents, like if you look at where it is, it's the offices of this ACF property management company. So yeah, I got curious about this. Like, I was like, oh, this poetry magazine can be a nonprofit, which can be a, a tax shelter. These millionaire, billionaire, whatever landlords like. And then I'm thinking, like, how do these other, you know, even bigger foundations function? Because, like, Rattle's not the biggest, and it's pretty fucking shady. But, like, you look at, like, the big stuff, like Poetry Foundation, which is, you know, essentially, like, existed before, but in the, in the aughts, I guess, got this $200 million donation um, from the Ruth Lilly estate entirely in Eli Lilly and company pharmaceutical stock. And so they're sort of funded by that pharmaceutical stock. Um, I looked at their like 2017 financial information. It's not entirely clear where their money is. They say they diversified the stock portfolio some um, so apparently it's not entirely in Eli Lilly's stock still, um, but it doesn't say how much Eli Lilly stock they still have some. And um, they have like, uh, I think $20 million in real estate investments. That's separate from like their facilities, their building that they bought. So they're also like in this landlord game. Yeah, and they recently, after they got that donation, they built a fancy new building in Chicago. But yeah, I think it would be interesting to see over the years how they diversified their stocks, because I think 
that's been the source of much, much um, debate within their institution. You know, I remember reading articles about it in the past, but I can't remember offhand what happened there. But I think there, because it is a foundation, I think we should be able to look into it in the future and see like what the history of their investment is. But I think, uh, but I think what would be interesting to do too is to compare like what the various artists have been doing around the Whitney and the fact that one of the people who funds it uh, is uh, like a tear gas company essentially and how the artists have resisted that and tried to organize around getting him to pull out. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, I was just looking at, uh, I think you posted a, a link to an article on that uh, uh, just earlier today that I was looking at. And I'm curious, like one, how can we, how can we sort of make this more transparent, right? Because especially poetry foundations, like 990 PF form or whatever, they're like nonprofit tax form that's public record is not super specific. Um, and so I have contact information for their chief financial officer who I was planning to call today, but didn't um, get to it. But I want to contact them and see what more specific information I can get about like their stock portfolios and their real estate investments. And, you know, if they if they aren't willing to open that up, then maybe that's something we need to push for. Um, and that poets who are connected to Poetry Foundation maybe need to push for that transparency um, because it seems like it's a little opaque right now. Yeah, and just to be clear too, it's really important because in the poetry world, basically the Poetry Foundation is by far the richest patron. They have the, they have the most money. They have literally hundreds of millions of dollars. And it's just not clear what they're actually doing and where that money is. Right, and the other big one is uh, uh, the Whiting Foundation. Um, you know, that gives out the big awards and grants. Um, and they have kind of an interesting history too that I was looking into because they get started. Um, oh gosh, what's her name? Uh, the lady who started uh, the, the Whiting Foundation, Flora Whiting. So Flora Whiting is this lady, um, rich lady whose husband, uh, Giles Whiting owns, uh, I think a rug factory. Um, and dies and she gets left a bunch of money and uh, she makes some uh, investments. Um, she invests heavily in IBM in the 40s, which is when IBM is, uh, is working in Germany with the Nazis. Um, so she invests in this Nazi technology company, makes a bunch of money um, and, and founds this, uh, this nonprofit foundation um, that gives out Whiting Awards in poetry. So this is another big source of money in poetry and I had a look at at their 990 as well and they're just like I don't know they're invested in all kinds of shit um there are some interesting ones here um let me try to find what I was looking at yeah like just like a lot of like JP Morgan stuff. So they're just, you know, sort of going through JP Morgan, which is normal fin financial management stuff, but also like, you know, JP Morgan is into all kinds of horrible stuff. Um, also like heavily invested in this, uh, 
distressed investing specialist firm, Cerberus Capital Management, um, which is Dan Quayle's like capital management firm that I think my understanding of distressed investment strategies is that they like buy up businesses that are dying, but they also go into like, they go into like, um, you know, countries that are having economic issues and buy up debt and shit like that. So I'm still kind of like digging into this stuff, figuring out like how this works and all these different companies that Whiting is invested in. But what it comes down to, I think, is that these these foundations, all these big nonprofits, um, sort of, you know, are managing their finances, probably just in a way where like, oh, what's the best returns we can get, right? We have this like fi these financial people, and their job is just to take our money and make sure we get more money out of it. And there's not a lot of ethical consideration for how that money gets thrown around, and so it gets thrown around to all these really horrible places. And I think. I think that poets, I think that artists can make demands of these institutions that I don't want to say that they like invest ethically, right? Because investment is is ultimately still, um, you know, it's this participation in capitalism that I don't think can be ethical, but at least that they disentangle the, themselves from these like immediately presently violent institutions like Eli Lilly and Company Pharmaceuticals or Cerberus Capital Management, which sounds like a fucking like super villain. Yeah, that that sounds messed up. That reminds me, uh, Barnes and Noble recently got bought out by one of those type of venture capitalist firms, um, you know, the vulture capitalist ones that was literally um, buying up debt during the Argentinian debt crisis and caused a massive crisis in that country over that and it's interesting to see that you know that's it's happening like across the the poetry and literature world that these companies are moving in like that but i don't know it it seems like something else that needs to be asked too is like how what it seems to me that, that these companies that um these foundations are doing is they're clearly just like living off the interests and, you know, it's, it's, it seems to me highly unethical to be living off, you know, interest of tens of hundreds of millions of dollars while most poets are incredibly poor and live in poverty. Yeah, right. Like, think about, God, think about, like, everything that money could do. And also, I think part of the problem is that these are capitalist institutions and that they're going to be they're going to be tied to these other institutions and they're going to create these kind of problems. They're going to hoard resources. Um, they're going to use those resources in really unethical ways. And so I think part of what we need to address too is like, how do we build poet poetic institutions that aren't capitalist or that are against these capitalist institutions? How do we build, you know, networks of mutual aid and support um, how do we fucking unionize poetry, you know? Yeah. That's a, that's a good question because Poetry Magazine can't exist without us writing for it. And I think something else you're interested in is building um, 
you know, a trans zine archive to try and counteract some of what's going on. Yeah, yeah, I think in the, you know, in the trans lit, trans poetry scene, whatever, you have a lot of people who don't have any access to these institutions. Um, you know, Poetry Magazine um, has historically not published a lot of trans poetry. Uh, there was kind of a whole drama last year where they were supposed to have a trans poetry issue. It was handled really poorly. Um, trans poets criticized it, and then Poetry Magazine quietly canceled the issue. Um, but there's a lot happening in these trans literary spaces where people are self-publishing zines and chat books, just putting things online, uh, publishing through these, you know, sort of small presses uh, that people just kind of start. And there are all these really interesting conversations happening there. But also this stuff is really ephemeral. So these conversations kind of happen and then they fade away. And then the, you know, just nobody has any copies of those zines anymore. And then, you know, people make new zines and those sort of same conversations happen again with a new set of voices. But we don't really have like, there's not an archive people can go back to. You know, people can't go to like a library and look through these zines and it typically, you know, and say, oh, what if what have people done on this before? You know, a lot of people are communicating through like Twitter and stuff and, you know, building these informal social networks uh, on social media websites. But I think, I think we need, um, you know, an archive where, where this work can kind of, kind of live and be archived and that people can access and look at what people have done before. So not even necessarily like building something like a library, which I think is a lot more work, um, but an archive where, you know, some physical things can be stored, everything can be cataloged in a relational database um, that can be searchable by anyone who wants access. And then if you can digitize things, you can make digital copies available. Um, and that kind of thing has been done um, with some zines and magazines, but not really with like literary stuff. Um, so not for, you know, poetry and, and short fiction and this sort of thing. Um, so I'm trying right now to figure out how to, how to get some project like that going. Yeah, and I think that work is really important, like you said, because it kind of feels like sometimes the same sort of conversations repeat themselves. And something like I've noticed uh, in doing like Mar the Marxist poetry thing is just how ephemeral so much of poetry is. And I think poetry is often presented as this kind of timeless thing that the poetry that, you know, poetry magazine publishes. But in reality, it's especially amongst leftist and marginalized folks, it's it's really ephemeral and it's often made not by a few big names, but a whole movement of, of hundreds of people. And to have that archive, I think, would really help like people understand the, the moment we're living in and also how to talk about it in a way that can perhaps uh, change how things have traditionally been done, because we are having a lot of the same conversations that have been had in the past. You know, like I found a conversation in the in um, the New Masses archive that was basically uh, one of the editors criticizing Poetry Magazine for not realizing that a huge leftist poetry movement had been going on for years. And it's just a very similar thing happening now. Right. And some 
sometimes it seems like we're having these conversations, like, you know, it can be like a, two years later and we're having the same conversation again. And particularly with people, with marginalized people, like you get pushed out of these scenes or you get burnt out, you know, people, people quit poetry all the time. Everyone's always quitting poetry. And so people leave and new people come in and they don't really have access to the work of the people who left. And so they're kind of like repeating and it feels like, it feels like it's not helping us build something that we could build. Cause like we could, I think really build something revolutionary or radical, but it's like, we're just spinning, spinning this, these same wheels over and over so that we never get there. Yeah, and the and the loss of that archival and the loss of that memory is something that, you know, that's a form of that's institutionalized by how these by by how these institutions operate. It's institutionalized in who Poetry Magazine, you know, publishes, it's institutionalized in who, you know, New Directions publishes. You see so little put into say, you know, Carl, uh, the last person on the podcast, Carl Cassia talks about how um, the, the publishing world really doesn't translate anything from the radical Spanish uh, speaking movements in Central and South America. And, you know, that, that, that's not by accident that that happens. The, these are all deliberate choices. And we have to, I think, try and make the choice to, to stop this kind of forgetting. Yeah, definitely. These these institutions like Poetry Foundation are ultimately curatorial, like you're saying. They're they're sort of, you know, making this canon and deciding what people have access to and what people don't. Um, I'm thinking about uh, 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 Jamie Barut started this project uh, called the Trans Women Writers Collective, um, which became the booklet series that she's doing now, where every month she's been putting out a different booklet of um, trans women's writing, usually trans women of color, um, and also doing a lot of uh, translation. So a lot of the booklets have been stuff that she's translated uh, from Spanish. And it's been really cool to like suddenly have access to this work that like, you know, these, this like radical, uh, you know, trans women wrote in Spanish, you know, years ago that I've never seen before. And all of a sudden, like, you know, everybody has access to it and can talk about it. And we can have these conversations and build on them. And I think, um, yeah, I think that's that project in that sense is a little archival, like it's reaching back and pulling these things forward. And I think that's a good model for for some of the things that I would want to do with this this archival project that I'm working on. And I guess, like, who who are you thinking of to, like? What zines like do you remember that you're you want to try and include in this project if you if you don't mind like trying to if you don't mind me putting you on the spot a bit for that? Oh gosh, I don't even like <laughs> I have to think about it. I've got like you know I've got some just a bunch of zines and chat books on my bookshelf uh, that's upstairs here. Uh, but I'm thinking about like I don't know. My friend Magpie did this really cool kind of surreal horror story zine that like she made a few copies of and sold and then like 
it's really cool. But I, you know, just like a few people have copies and I think, oh, that'd be really cool if like that could be archived and maybe digitized in a way that people could, could continue to access it. Or like, uh, you know, I also think like, like Jamie Brute's making physical copies of this booklet series, but they're kind of limited run. They're going out to, um, you know, who, whoever subscribes on the Patreon for that. And it would be cool if some of those could be like physically archived, um, you know, in like archival boxes and folders and things and cataloged. Um, I'm also thinking about um, Cardamonier, uh, who does a lot of really cool, uh, like trans indie comic stuff, um, started a press where she just got a, a Rezograph. I think that's, I don't, I'm not totally sure how that like machine is pronounced, but she got like a bunch of old printing equipment and just started printing people's comics and publishing them. This press called Discat Press. Um, and I have like uh, a couple things she's done, but it would be really cool to be able to like, you know, archive stuff that's coming out of this like particular just small independent press. You've made a few zines too. Like um, I remember reading, I think off Gumroad, your one about insomnia. And I guess like how, how are these zines usually being distributed? And I guess what can that tell us about how we should maybe consider building alternative structures to the poetry world now? I think a lot of this is happening. Um, a lot of people put stuff just on Gumroad, um, just like a you know third-party website where you can sell PDFs and shit. Um, so that's where I've had some of my stuff hosted. Um, it's kind of nice, I think, to put stuff out myself on there sometimes, and then like I can take it down if I want to. So it's not like going through a publisher. If I'm like, oh, I don't want this to be out in the world anymore, I can take it away which I guess is, is counterproductive to the archival impulse that I have. But sometimes you don't want something, you know, in the archive, which is, which is fair. But like, I think part of the problem with, with digital distribution is Gumroad is a big one, but there's several other ways um, people can distribute stuff. There's Itch.io. Um, there are all these different channels to look through. And there's not like a, there's not like a one-stop, like, um, this is actually uh, something uh, Colette Aaron was talking about. Um, like, uh, like, what if we had like a band camp, you know, for like zines or poetry or whatever? Um, the way band camp has kind of been like this, like, this company that I think is done pretty well by people does take a bit of a cut, um, but kind of where people can just upload their music and sell it and promote it. And it actually seems to work pretty well. And it's been really good for all these independent music scenes um, for people to be able to share music that way. And I think um, something too that Bandcamp probably helps with is, I guess let me backtrack and say, I've noticed a lot of leftist writers will put their stuff up on Amazon. And I'm not like knocking that in any way, but what that gets me thinking about is how like on Amazon, it always is constantly suggesting you new new things to read once you, you know, shop there or whatever, have a profile. And it seems like the main way that like discoverability works for, say, people on selling their stuff on Gumroad is through through Twitter or maybe in the past through Tumblr. And I think having a band like a leftist band camp type thing for publishing could be really helpful for trying to help 
trying to like make scenes and also help people who are interested in finding this kind of work find what they're looking for. And I, I don't think that necessarily happens enough today, given that a lot of that has to happen through Twitter and Twitter has obviously so many problems. Yeah, I think a lot does kind of have to happen through these informal networks that, that are often, yeah, communicating through Twitter. You know, this stuff, most of it's not in like public libraries. So you can't go to like the public library and look, you know, in the section where you're interested in, and find stuff typically. Yeah, I was thinking about this um, with regard to um, another literary organization, actually, uh, Lambda Literary, um, which does the, the Lammy Awards every year. Which are kind of these big awards in uh, in you know LGBTQ uh, literature, um, which are I just found out. I thought you got money with these awards, but I guess you don't get money. So you have to pay and send like print copies of your book to them to consider it. Um, and if you win the award, I guess you just like your publisher gets to put a stamp on your book that you won the award. And what that does then is like if you win the award for like, say, you know, trans poetry, then your book is the book that public libraries will buy, like the one trans poetry book for that year or whatever. And so, so these institutions like Lambda are also controlling like what people have access to in, in libraries and public archives. Right. And oftentimes these institutions are, you know, picking not not exclusively, but it does tend to lead to, I guess, more liberal folks ending up getting the getting the nod from these institutions. And a lot of the more radical critiques of these institutions, I think, end up going missing, right? Like, I think a lot of the people on Twitter right now criticizing poetry, the Poetry Foundation and stuff might not remember like say the mongrel coalition against uh, gringo poetry and that was only like what three or four years ago and things seem to slip so quickly from the memory from people's memories and these institutions obviously don't uh, care, care to have that stuff remembered and i'm still um yeah i'm still discovering things and digging things up i was not really you know, it's kind of like writing poetry on my own, but not paying attention to like the poetry world or trying to publish poetry until really, I don't know, maybe 2016, like late 2016. So like, you know, I'm coming into this scene relatively new and I'm like, oh, what's sort of what's been going on to shape this like discourse that's happening now? And I'm having to kind of like dig back into stuff. And sometimes it's really convoluted and it's kind of a maze and it's hard to figure out what's going on. And you know, once again, I think this is an issue of like curation and, and what we archive. And I think, so I think specifically with, with digitizing, with digital archives, like we have this very limited curation particularly in poetry. And it's like, why? We can effectively archive everything digitally fairly cheaply and effectively. Right. And what's interesting too is, you know, the internet was supposedly about making these things discoverable and helping people sort through these huge amounts of information. But 
you know, what's actually happened in the corporate hell world of Twitter is these sort of discussions end up taking place. And then you're digging through, you know, these, you know, hundred long tweet threads, and it's just impossible, impossible to tell how any of this started or, you know, what side is the right side even, or, you know, who, who started all these kind of key questions seem to get lost. And I think you're right that it is very possible to archive these things in such a way that we might actually learn from them instead of repeating similar things over and over again. Yeah. And I think, you know, maybe this is also shaped by where I'm coming from. Um, I should say like, you know, I have a, I have an academic background in archeology span and a little bit in history. And I worked in a, in museum collections where I built an archive. So I was focused on like, you know, sort of, sort of figuring out these historical processes and, and archiving the artifacts of those things and all the documents. And like, so I am coming, you know, from a particular place, just myself, where I tend to think of this stuff as really important. But I'm also thinking about like, this process of curation. Because um, if you're, if you're, if you're, putting like archaeological materials in a museum. Uh, this is one of the big issues with archaeology that maybe people don't think about is you, you save everything. You know, every little rock from an archaeological dig um, and all the information about exactly where and when and how that rock was found has to be preserved. Um, and so this takes up a ton of space and is really impractical and is expensive. Um, there's a lot of labor involved in making sure things are stored in the right way and making sure they're electronically cataloged in the right way. Um, but with like, with words, um, you know, and pictures, um, with literature, this sort of thing is much easier. And so the curatorial process is not about this limitation on storage or access that functionally needs to be there. Rather, it's wrapped up in this, um, this sort of neoliberal ideology of meritocratic exceptionalism. This idea that only certain things deserve to be in the archive and only certain things deserve to be accessed. And that's because they're exceptional or the people who created them are exceptional. And so these institutions like Poetry Magazine, Poetry Foundation, um, to some extent Lambda Literary, are deciding what's exceptional, what deserves to be in the archive, and in doing so, deciding what isn't and what doesn't deserve to be in the archive. And I think if we're going to build institutions that are open, that are anti-capitalist, um, that are resisting these sorts of violent entanglements that organizations like Poetry Foundation or Rattle Foundation have. Um, we have to think about that. We have to think about curating in a way that doesn't reproduce this ideology because it's really just, it's really bad. Right. And I think, um, I guess two things. Uh, so, you know, the trying to build the kind of archive trying to build the kind of archive you're talking about kind of allows people to perhaps consent to what they actually want included because oftentimes these archives are 
records of power, of course, and what gets recorded isn't necessarily what the people themselves would actually want to have recorded. And I was just wondering, you know, how you like plan to, how you think you might be able to like navigate that and choose based off of what people actually want. Yeah, for sure. So I'm still in the early kind of idea phase of this project. I did start building an access database and, you know, just thinking about what I would need to track and thinking a little bit about like how to, how to do, um, how to acquire, you know, materials for the archival physical and digital. And I think, you know, part of it is I, I want to be able to one, like pay people for their work when I'm acquiring it, right? Like get in touch with someone or whatever, buy a copy of their zine. Um, but I think with each, like each thing that's added to the archive, I think there needs to be, if possible, some contact with the author. Hey, do you want this in the archive? Do you want it digitized? Do you want it to be accessible online or not? Like, and I think there are ways you can track this in the database and there are ways you can make this, um, so that they can modify their consent, right? So the database can say, oh, this person consented to have their work, you know, in the archive and digitally hosted uh, where people can access it through, you know, a website or something. Oh, no, you can say oh I was just going to say, and then if somebody like, you know, could email you like down the road and be like, hey, I don't like want that work shared anymore for whatever reason. Can you take it down and maybe just keep like the physical archive, but that's not just accessible on the web page or something, then you could just modify that in the database and just take it down. Uh, something else I've been thinking about is I just read uh, Beautiful Lives, Wayward Experiments by um, Hartman. And that's, and she kind of has this, how she has, she has a concept I think called critical fabulation. And it's trying to like read between the lines in the archives to try and imagine agency for, in this project, the young black women in the, at the turn of the last century, as they experienced, you know, urbanization as, uh, as slavery ended and reconstruction ended. And what that reminds me of, like how this sort of archival work, I think really matters is a lot of archival work at the present is really trying to read against the archive and like read against it in terms of what the people who constructed it actually wanted and having a resource that you don't have to do that with having an archive, you don't have to fight with seems like a really important way to um, capture, uh, not capture, but uh, think through questions of people's agency in various time periods. And, you know, like, like you were saying, you have an archeological background. I have like more of an historical one and it's hard to imagine um, like the past lives of people other than the people who had power and having that ability increasingly to construct lives of people who who were oppressed or marginalized in whatever way is really i think key to trying to imagine alternatives or organize for something different other than the status quo yeah yeah i think when people can um you know, sort of construct their own archives and make their own choices, you know, as a group or as individuals about what goes into the archive, what comes out. Like, I think that looks very different. I'm, uh, 
I don't know, maybe kind of a silly example, but it, for some reason I'm thinking of uh, there's the like fan fiction archive, an archive of our own um, where people just upload their fan fiction or whatever. But it is this like, uh, you know, it's kind of a little bit of a communal archive. And I think that's that's cool. And that's something we can think about. And like, how are we how are we archiving and collecting and sharing our own work? And how in doing that, are we helping other people archive and collect and share and do their own work. And uh, gosh, I'm getting a little like, I think I'm, I'm moving too fast for myself and I'm getting off track. Oh, it's okay. I was about to, I think, derail things further. Um, I was just going to say, like, I think the fan fiction thing isn't like a bad example. I think it's a really good one because it kind of takes place at a time when people are able to kind of write back and not just have TV broadcast at them. They had the ability to share what they wanted to happen in these stories and shows rather than just have it given to them by authority figures. Yeah, and there's a question I have, I think, like, just to, to take it back to, like, trans poetry specifically and how, like, a lot of trans poets have a lot of trouble placing work and, you know, even, like, a lot of like smaller, you know, lower tier, whatever journals, journals that don't pay. Um, and I think, I know for me, like trying to get my work in journals, um, trying to get a book out, like that has been an influence on how I do my work and what I write about. You know, I, I am sometimes thinking whether I want to be thinking about it or not. I know that like on some level, I'm thinking about, well, how does this need to be if I want to get it published? How does this need to be you know, if I want somebody to buy it, um, you know, how is this manuscript going to look to a potential publisher I send it to? And I think if you give people ways to share their work or if people build ways to share their work together that don't function on these models, then that opens up the possibilities for the kinds of work that people can do. People don't have to be beholden to these same you know, conscious or subconscious limitations. I guess uh, presses are pieces of capital and um, you can short circuit that by having, you know, trying to use the internet in different ways and trying to build up each other's, build up a scene, basically. Yeah, I think so. And I think it has to be collective. There has to be, you know, a group of people sharing resources doing this together or it, it really doesn't go very far right like I'm thinking about like you know I do kind of like experimental drone ambient noise music um, and just kind of throw it on Bandcamp, and I don't really care if anybody listens to it it's just kind of a thing that I mostly do for myself and so you know a few people listen to it and it's whatever and I don't have like a big desire there to like be part of or build a scene around it but I think if you are trying to share your work, if you're trying to share, you know, your poetry or something, then there does have to be some some collective efforts. So either you're beholden to these institutions um, who have this institutional power of curation, or you have to build a scene that's big enough um, that you can collectively like share things and put things out and build up your own resources and, and have mutual aid projects. And so I think there's a connection between me wanting to 
build this archive. This is what I'm what I'm trying to get to here. So there's a connection between me wanting to build this archive and me wanting to have some kind of collective pool of resources. You know, I, I don't know if a you know a union or or a syndicate is like the right word here, but maybe just like a shared fund where people who win an award or something, they want to share some of it, you know, they can share it. And then that fund is there. And if somebody needs like money to print their zine at, at FedEx or at the local public library, like they can kind of tap into that resource and people can, can share a little bit. Yeah. And I think that's really key. The only way to do this for, you know, marginalized people and people trying to criticize the system we live in is to is through mutual aid because you know we're not gonna we're not gonna get money from you know the Guggenheim or I'm not gonna get a Stegner fellowship or something it's gotta it's gotta be through supporting each other and uh, trying to pull our funds to accomplish something like this yeah yeah when I was in grad school my my advisor and I applied for a National Science Foundation grant and uh, we didn't get it, which is part of why I'm no longer in grad school. But <laughs> that whole process is just like wild. Like there's so much involved in trying to get money from these institutions, even when you're part of like a really big institution, like a research university. And it's just this chain of like violent institution wrapped up in violent institution. And God, that's another thing, like the fucking university system, like primarily exists to turn stolen land into capital like they're landlords before they're anything else and so if you're trying to build you know through through like academic resources you know academic journals um archives that are tied to the academy like you're tying that to those institutions in ways that i think are ultimately really fucked up so you have to think about that too yeah, and I guess two things. One is, you know, these institutions are presented as meritocratic and that affects, again, what ends up being archived. And another thing that's really frustrating about these university archives is very often they're not digitized and available to anyone. You know, I constantly am looking at the, at the Marxist poetry account and finding, you know, pretty obscure poets and I'll find out, oh, their papers are at the University of Iowa or, oh, their papers are at NYU and the papers are just simply not digitized. And there's just like, I can't, you just have to go there. And it's like, I can't go there. What, what, are, you, what are you talking about? Yeah, yeah, they expect you to have, you know, like your own institutional affiliation. So your institution pays for you to fly to their institution and like look at these papers. Or if they do digitize them, it's some poor like, you know, undergrad volunteer working under like an overworked, underpaid graduate research assistant. And it's just kind of like, you know, there's all this labor exploitation involved at every level and scale. Yeah, there was a really cool art project. This must have been like 2012, 2013. And it was, you know, how Google was scanning like all the books in the world, basically. Yeah. And yeah. it, and it was, um, it was someone had got like an artist had basically gone through and just taken the photo, just taken the, the scans where the person hadn't taken their hand out in time. So everyone's, so it would just like a, be a lit, uh, a stream of images that were a stream of images that were just the people, people's hands that they hadn't taken out of the scanner as they, the book was scanning. 
and I think that speaks to, you know, the, the exploitation of that labor, you know, those, those folks weren't, you know, making $15 an hour with benefits for sure. Yeah. God, I've never made that. Yeah. It's, it's tough to like, the thing with the poetry scene is it is tough to, it is, it's always important to remember that how, how little money there is in it and how the, these critiques I think are more about trying to get, these large institutions with, you know, again, hundreds of millions of dollars to maybe um, redistribute that. And I think the prize system we have and the fellowship and award system, it encourages this like, you know, potentially really cutthroat competition for these limited resources that are really artificially limited. Um, And we do get like, you know, it's a it's a way that makes people feel like if we get something, we have to fight for it and we have to fight for these institutions somehow and protect this little like scrap that we got. But it's like, why can't we, you know, why can't we march in to fucking Poetry Foundation's $10 million building and just demand the fucking money and share it? Yeah. And, you know, what's also wild about the, the forced scarcity, too, is a lot of people, because these institutions masquerade as being meritocratic, we end up seeing people, you know, saying, oh, I deserve this. I deserve this money that such and such foundation gave me. And as if there aren't literally hundreds of other people who could be just as deserving. And I think that that kind of fosters a very um, negative culture, let's say where um, people are very critical of people who don't necessarily make it in the correct way. And I think people are scared. I think people who have any kind of, any kind of access to these institutions or any kind of money, you know, there, there's a fear there. I don't know. I won like this, uh, I won this award um, just recently, this peach gold prize just, put out by a peach magazine which is like a small magazine and they do like a $500 prize um which was great um yeah yeah, yeah it helps me uh you know it's like what I like the poem was really good let me just say the poem was really good oh thank you yeah so that like paid my rent like that was like my half of the rent um for that month which I didn't have otherwise so it was really great to win that um even if I'm kind of like you know I've been pretty critical of contests um um, the fucking like entry fee and reading fee thing. Um, I don't know. Peach Mag does do an entry fee for that contest, um, which I assume goes to pay the judge. I don't really know how that works, but I just sent them an email and I was like, Hey, I don't have any money. I can't pay this reading fee. Here's my poem. And they were like, cool. Yeah, that's fine. And so then, you know, I won and that was great. Um, but like, with winning something like that, there comes a, there comes a fear like, Oh, I've got, I got kind of noticed now by these people who have, you know, a little more money, a little more institutional access, you know, I better keep my mouth shut. I better not be too critical because I could lose this like upward poetry mobility I've gained or whatever. But of course for me, I can never keep my mouth shut, but I know like that, that fear that comes with any kind of, of money and poetry or any kind of institutional access is definitely real. No, I think the fear is a really big thing that in the poetry space, because again, just a couple institutions have a tremendous amount of power. 
it was very rare a few years ago to see anybody critiquing the Poetry Foundation or say Grey Wolf Press were taking money from Wells Fargo and Target. And I think it has a lot to do with the fear. You know, those are those are the institutions. And if you annoy the institutions, you then have to, you know, beg them for forgiveness like you're a liberal poet. Yeah, yeah. And the, the Wiley Agency, right? Aren't there a lot of, like, poets through the Wiley Agency? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's that's a whole other thing. But what is very frustrating is you see a lot more poets getting agents and poets getting agents is, is a weird thing because, you know, agents are basically there to network. And what that means is a lot more stuff is going to happen behind the scene in an institutionalized way. And, you know, I tweeted about this today, but all these poets getting agents could have the effect of um, them pulling up, pulling the ladder up behind themselves. You know, how are, how are unagented people, unagented poets going to, you know, place poems if all the institutions that pay are now spoken for through agent connections or something like that. I'm not saying that's what it's at now, but I really do think we could see a future where that that happens. I mean, I think that's probably what the agencies would want to see. You know, that's how they make their money. They make their money through as a percentage of the, you know, the stuff they find for their writers. So that's definitely what the agencies want. And the Wiley agency, again, is one of the most money hungry of all agencies. So I, that's a that's a worrying, worrying development, I think. And, you know, we should really ask poets who are signing up with agencies like that. You know, what what is the, the goal here, especially if there's someone who's like, you know, perhaps tenured or perhaps has had a couple best selling books like do you do you really need this? Like, it doesn't seem like you do. But I think we should at least talk about why you're doing this. Yeah, I've got a so I've got an agent story. Um, 2017, I went to the um, the Lambda Literary Retreat, um, which I have some criticisms of. So the Lambda Retreat is like, you know, another one of these things that you have to like apply to get into. And it's, you know, I guess it has some prestige associated with it. It's this like curatorial process. And then you get in and you'd think like it's a fellowship. Um, so you get this like Lambda Literary Fellowship, which usually means, you know, to me, that means like coming from, from like an academic background, um, money it means you get money but a lambda fellowship you don't get money you go to a retreat and you pay tuition um to go to this retreat that's at uh, otis college of art and design in la and um anyway 2017 i got a i got a scholarship so i was able to go and i've never been to la and i'm like okay i'll go to this thing and um you know i had like a really great cohort and that was really nice um but anyway I go to, to this, um, they do like talks and stuff that you can go to that are optional while you're like at the retreat. And I go to this talk by a literary agent on how to get an agent. And there's kind of a room full of people. And this guy, you know, he's wearing a suit. And he's like, how many novelists do we have in here? You know, novelists, raise your hand. And there's like, a, there's like a YA workshop. So he's like, how many, you know, YA genre fic authors do we have? And some people raise their hands. And, you know, he goes through some things. He's like, how many playwrights are here? And no one raises their hand. And he's like, how many poets? And I raise my hand alone. And he goes, you can just leave. Yeah, that's that sounds that sounds just about right. Um, I think something else that 
as we're talking about with agents too is you know it could have a to make an analogy to the music to make an analogy to the music scene like there's often talk of various artists being industry plants and you know i'm not trying to say anyone's an industry plant right here but i i think i just want to say that agents can you know shape the kind of stuff we see in literary magazines without us knowing it and you know i because poets are so happy to have agents they very often will put them in their twitter bios and i end up seeing like people with not very many followers and no books out with agents and it's like what how is how is this what what's going on here like what what effect is this agent thing going to have on who ends up being published and seen in the poetry scene yeah who who has the agency there <laughs> yeah that's exactly it but like you're saying though in the past it wasn't the case and i think that's why we really need to talk about agents in the poetry scene because it is a very new thing and it's really only something that's happened over the last three or four years we need to ask the poets with agents, you know, what they're trying to accomplish and, you know, do they realize like the possible negative effects that they're having on the scene? Like if it's just to place a book with, you know, one of the huge publishers, that's okay. I mean, that's, that's fine. But if it's also factoring into, you know, who gets published where that's, you know, that's possibly not great. Yeah, and I don't totally, I don't know, I don't understand how these agents work. That's part of why I went to that talk, um, but I did end up leaving and just like smoking cigarettes behind the building. Um, but like, yeah, I don't know if they're like, because like if you're like, you know, in a band, you have an agent, they're like booking your tour and doing that kind of thing. So is this, are they involved in touring? Um, you know, and then how is like, if there's a new kind of touring scene emerging, then how is that going to affect like how people get their work out there? Yeah, that's another thing is um, increasingly there's a like live events scene popping up and you see a lot of poets with like speaking agencies. And again, like that, that's kind of why I think we need to ask some of the poets who are involved with like the poetry foundation and stuff, like why they're still involved with, or why they aren't making demands of this institution. Because a lot of them, a lot of poets now, I think have, have platforms where they, they don't really need say the poetry foundation or they don't need, you know, one of the big four publishers. Now I think there was a merger, but anyway, you know, the people, there are poets now with power and they could use that power to, you know, compel changes that would benefit, I think, a lot of us. You know, you always see these these same, like, handful of poets. You have this kind of these big platforms promoting each other in this, like, circle that happens seemingly every day. And, yeah, I wonder what it would look like if, and maybe people are, and I'm just not seeing it, but if people who who do have this this level of access and these platforms are kind of using them to to lift people up and to build these communities and to set up kind of networks of mutual aid. Yeah. And to be clear too, I think this level of power that they have has only been over the last couple of years. And I think I don't want to be like overly critical at this point, but you know, it is getting to the point where they really could make some decisions that um, perhaps would benefit other people and I'm also, I may be going to derail a little here. Um, I'm interested in how, like, uh, how a different kind of, you know, live scene and tour scene is emerging and how that ties in with a lot of the ableism that's already inherent. Um, 
you know, and, and publishing poetry just on the page, like, because a lot of these spaces where I've read, um, I've read these spaces are like really inaccessible to me. Um, I, uh, I have a sensory processing disorder. And so I get like sensory overload really easily from like, certain types of bright light, or especially if there's just a room that's noisy and lots of people talking and has bad acoustics. Um, I don't know, I don't really deal well with people clapping <laughs> in scenes where people clap a lot. Um, so it's like, but you know, there are a lot of spaces I've been to, uh, you know, they're not necessarily accessible to wheelchair users or to people with various kinds of uh, physical disabilities. Um, you know, so it's like, Disabled people of all kinds are kind of barred, I think, in different ways from publishing poetry. But I think that's like amplified a great deal in, in performance poetry and in, you know, live performance in general in these venues. Yeah. And now that we're like an hour into this podcast, I think it's podcasting tradition for me to tell on myself a bit. And I used to work for a music industry accountant. And I, you know, I've seen the books and most to, to put it uh, as a tweet, most music albums now are just ads for tours, ads for live events. And I think we could see the poetry scene head in that direction where books or whatever, books, um, publishing credentials or whatever are just ads for live events. And if we do head in that direction, you're right, we need to ask questions about questions about access or questions about, you know, what, what this, what the point of this actually is. Yeah. I mean, I think it's the same question of who, who gets these platforms, who gets to share their work, um, who gets to do that work in the first place and who gets to access it. And I think like, you know, we, we want to, I think, probably most people want to want these things to be more open. Maybe that's too optimistic. Um, but like we have to, uh, God, I'm kind of losing track of my thoughts. Sorry. I'm a little high. <laughs> is, is that edible hitting? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's okay. I think, I think what we're really seeing here is some kind of some major like shifts in just how literature is produced and consumed and like the costs associated with it. I think, you know, people want more live events. So now live events are profitable. And, you know, the cost of publishing things has just, you know, kind of gone through the floor with the internet. And, you know, this is this has occasioned all kinds of shifts within the industry. And I think, you know, this is a moment where we could maybe encourage some positive structural changes for writers. And, you know, we could we could all gang up on the Poetry Foundation and demand they give us more money. It really could be that simple. Yeah, I mean, why not? Why not storm their fucking offices? Yeah, one of my poems ends with the, me suggesting like a heist movie style robbery of the Poetry Foundation. Absolutely. Yeah, I went to uh, this uh, last year, I went to my first AWP uh, conference, you know, the big annual writers conference because it was in Portland, which is like two hours away from where I was at. And like, I couldn't really afford to register for the conference, but I shared an Airbnb with a friend and uh, a few of us went to the, to the book fair and like, you're, they're supposed to check your badge, you know, that you registered at the conference when you go into the book fair, it's, it's kind of expensive to even get in to buy books. 
it's even more expensive, like, like just tons of money if you want to actually have a table to sell books there. Um, but anyway, we just went and like snuck in and just, you know, just look confident and look like you own the place and walk in. Um, and I just brought a stack of zines that I'd printed and then I went to the Lambda literary table and because I was at Lambda in 2017, I was like, oh yeah, hi, you know, I'm going to sit and watch the table for a bit. Um, you know, for like an hour or something, you can have a break, um, set up my zines at the table and sell them at the AWP book fair. And like, I didn't sell a ton of zines there, but like I sold a few and I see, you know, sold a bunch more at a reading and like, just, you know, over the course of like being in Portland for a few days, I like sold enough to kind of help cover the cost of the trip. So I don't know. I guess what I'm getting at is you could just print your own book at the public library and then sneak into AWP and find like an empty table maybe or a table that, you know, or someone's just, just be like, hey, you can take a break. I'll watch the table and just sell your book there. Yeah, I think that's called uh, Praxis. But, um, sorry, uh, AWP seems like, I mean, I see pictures on Instagram or Twitter all the time, and it just seems, oh god, it seems like hell, uh, the way, it just seems like, sorry, what was that? Oh, I was just gonna say it's a fucking nightmare space. Yeah, it just seems like everything that is capitalist about publishing put in one room. Yeah, just, you know, imagine a huge conference center and it's crowded, it's noisy, it's really inaccessible. It's fucking hell if you have any kind of sensory processing issues. It's really hard to get around if you have any kind of, like, you know, mobility impairment. And then it's just full of fucking, like, writers and publishers. It's the worst. Of course, it costs $70 million to get in. Yeah, but I don't know why anyone would pay. Like, I don't understand why people pay for conference registration. People do. I don't know why either, but people do. It's it's same with the live events. Like this podcast is free; anyone can listen to it. Why are you going to see? Oh, I'm not going to put anyone on blast, but why why are you going to see someone um, live when you could listen to this podcast? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, if you're going to your friends' like punk show or whatever, you should throw some money in. But like, yeah, why why are you paying to get into a fucking like huge academic conference? And then. Uh, there was uh, a couple of years ago, uh, Colette Aaron and uh, Mark Cugini and someone else, I think, started. Uh, sorry, I feel bad that I think there's a third person and I, I'm not sure. And I feel bad that I'm probably leaving someone out. Uh, but they I can always uh, put it in the notes of the show, if you remember. Anyway, they started like this alt book fair called Whale Prom, um, where people didn't have to like pay a ton of money to have a table there and sell books and people could just come in and then um, they weren't doing whale prom last year when I went um, but there were I think a couple of alternative book fairs that had sprung up um, that seemed really cool and then I think they're doing whale prom again next year at AWP in San Antonio so there are people trying to build like these parallel institutions while everyone's in town for these conferences where you can just go to these alternative book fairs and not have to like pay all this money. Yeah. And that's a good example of like the kind of stuff that needs to happen. Same with um, Jamie's uh, public publishing of the of various trans zines through Patreon and what you're trying to start with the trans, with the trans archive. 
you know, it it's really it is really I think daunting to try and start something like that. But I think there's really huge interest in that kind of stuff now. Yeah, and I think like I don't know, it is hard work to start any kind of project. But like I don't know what Jamie's done. Um, you know, I want to say like Jamie also like pays contributors really well to everything she puts out. Um, it's uh, kind of inactive right now on a break, but um, I'm a, a co-editor for a, a poetry site that some friends started called The Wanderer, um, which has published like a lot of really amazing trans poetry and always paid, uh, you know, paid contributors um, out of uh, Colette, who I mentioned, who was involved with uh, Whale Prom also started uh, the wanderer and was like just paying people out of pocket um there's another trans journal um that my friends cal just started called smoke and mold um that's all like trans prose nature writing and you know thinking through like yeah i saw that that was something about like sorry not to interrupt but that was something about like um climate change too and the yeah yeah so it's thinking about anthropogenic climate change um you know the 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 journal's set to have X number of issues over, you know, however many years um, we're supposed to have left now on the planet before catastrophic climate collapse. Um, but like Cal just started up this journal and, you know, is paying contributors well and um, out of pocket. And I don't, I don't think he has like a lot, but um, you know, I as uh, I did an essay for the first issue that's coming out and I emailed it to him and he PayPal or Venmo I don't remember anyway he sent me the money like 20 minutes after I emailed and like the essay I've never got I've never got wow. paid for something like immediately like that before it even gets printed yeah I see writers all the time on Twitter being like it's been three months and they still haven't paid me do you think I should follow up again oh yeah yeah i've had like i've had a couple journals i've had to like send mul like contact multiple times like hey you never paid me hey i i emailed you about this once already you still haven't paid me yeah that that was something that uh, i don't know if it's still going on but i forget what it was but there were we were a couple websites that were tracking how much um various publications paid and how timely they weren't paying and most even like you know big names that have the money were taking months to pay they're just like a couple hundred dollars yeah i was having to hassle poetry journals for like you know twenty dollar twenty five dollar honorarium or something yeah is there anything else you want is there anything else you wanted to talk about oh god at this point i don't know i had i had a couple notes that I ended up not really looking at, but I think we went over all the things that I made little notes to myself to talk about. Yeah, and I wanted to say too that this goes to all the guests, but you know, everyone's welcome back on this podcast if you do want to talk about something else. Cool. Yeah, I think I'll have a I'll have a chat book to promote soon. So, <laughs> you know, I'll be back. Yeah, I'll definitely uh, read it and we can talk about what you wrote. We didn't really get to talk much about your poetry. And, you know, I'd read, a, I'd say, one or two of your zines and a few of your poems. And it's definitely something that, that could be a full episode. Cool. Yeah, I'll look forward to it. 
yeah that'll be fun is there like uh is there like some kind of formal sign off that we do no i have no idea what i'm doing the audio quality is is however good i can make it in audacity in like 30 minutes so no this is a very low effort podcast with big ideas so we'll just um say uh, do you, where can people find you and how can they support you um you can find me um on twitter at a keen sense um which isn't like it sounds but is a keen like uh like a fruit um a-c-h-e-n-e-s-e-n-s-e so that's my very confusing Twitter handle. Um, you can also find me at sarahbest.zone, which is my website. And uh, in the spirit of one of your poems, what's your Venmo? Uh, it is uh, smbess, S as in Sarah, M as in Michelle, B-E-S-S. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> I hope someone sends you money for this. Yeah, I hope so too. I could use it. Yeah, let me... Uh, I guess we'll end and I'll just say, yeah, thanks for listening. All right. 10-4 over and out.